Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Premier Ford and his cabinet are expected to meet this week to debate some sort of vaccine passport or certificate for Ontario. Ford has repeatedly rejected the idea the past weeks as he finally caved into the pressure. Canada is set to start negotiations with the Taliban to secure a safe exit for Canadian citizens and Afghan refugees trying to leave Kabul. Foreign Policy Director and Monk Senior Fellow with McDonald Laurie Institute, Shuvaloy Majumbard, will join us to discuss that. And the Liberals had to cancel a campaign event on Friday due to safety concerns. Prompting the question, is the federal campaign trail becoming too dangerous? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of national news because of the the federal election coming up, but uh, the premiers of uh, all provinces and territories are involved in this in one way, shape, or form. Uh, Doug Ford said that he wanted himself and his cabinet to stay out of this, uh, but it appears now that uh, Doug Ford's going to be making headlines once again. Uh, he may well have been caving into pressure to create a vaccine passport here in Ontario. Queen's Park is reportedly set to announce sometime this week a vaccine certificate program. Sandy Salerno with details. Premier Doug Ford and his cabinet will be meeting sometime this week to debate some sort of a vaccine passport or certificate here in Ontario, one that could reportedly be used to limit access to certain non-essential services. The introduction of a proof of vaccination program would mark a significant reversal for the Premier, who has repeatedly rejected the idea, saying he doesn't want to see a split society. The government has been facing growing calls over the past few weeks from business leaders, municipal leaders and health professionals to bring in a unified province-wide program. Infection disease specialist Dr. Isaac Bogosh says it's a tool that would be very helpful during this fourth wave of COVID-19. It's important to have mechanisms to help keep businesses open, to help make safer indoor spaces, and to help prevent further transmission. Like, it makes a lot of sense. Other provinces are already moving ahead with a vaccine passport program, including BC and Quebec. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So if, in fact, this is going to happen this week, uh, why the turnaround? Uh, Please to welcome back to the program, Sabrina Nancy, who is the founder of Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Good morning, Bill. Hope you're keeping safe, too. Well, trying to keep up with all the players here. It's been kind of crazy. (laughs) Uh, Why the turnaround? I mean, as you've been reporting, Doug Ford was adamant about this. Not going to happen. Not here in Ontario. Not on my watch. Uh, and uh, just before he went into the witness protection program during the election here, uh, he was, again, reiterating that once again. Has, what, what's happened to make him change his mind? If, in fact, he has, we don't have confirmation of this. Or have, I know you've been asking around there. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is speculation right now. Um, but all of the, the sources that are speaking to reporters when this leaked on Friday seem to be on the same page. You're absolutely right that we have not heard from uh, the horse's mouth himself with the, the, from Premier Doug Ford. But essentially, it seems uh, inevitable that uh, as early as this week, it's it's a quiet day so far, so, so perhaps not today. But uh, sometime this week, the province will be announcing a proof of vaccination system. That's pretty much all we know at this point. Um, there's many questions about what it will look like, what form it will take. Uh, we do know that back in December that the province had a, a prototype, um, a mock-up of sorts for something that would involve a QR code, which is similar to what Quebec has brought in um, and is actually now dealing with security concerns. So many questions remain. uh, But I think generally speaking, this is going to be something that uh, restricts the unvaccinated from going to places like gyms and restaurants, movie theaters, uh, and maybe even big events like a a concert or a a soccer game. It's interesting. 
Herbert Ford must feel kind of like Michael Corleone in Godfather 3. You know, that scene where he says, every time I try to step back, I get pulled back in. Because he, he didn't want a profile in this election, but he's got one, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard for uh, someone like Doug Ford, I think, maybe even personally, to keep a, a low profile. This, this premier has said himself that he's a campaigner through and through. He loves being out on the stump, uh, you know, with the pandemic subsiding somewhat this summer. And of course, you know, we're staring down a, a surge in the fall with, with Delta around. But, you know, in, in any other time, Doug Ford would love to be uh, on the stump right now or, or even on the barbecue circuit. You know, it, the provincial election is not that far away right now. But the, the timing of all of this is really not lost on me um, or I think anyone else. Vaccine passports and mandates have certainly become a wedge issue, especially with the federal campaign. And these rumors started churning out uh, hours after Justin Trudeau had called on the premier to step up. Uh, you know, th there was talk of a this informal pact, the truth between Trudeau and Ford, who have served as each other's foils in, in 2019 and, and past elections. But uh, the, the, uh, the liberal leader Trudeau is is, is pushing uh, and actually you know raising the specter of Doug Ford a little more often you know as the campaign is ramping up, uh, so it, it has kind of pull, pulled Doug in and forced him to make a move on this. I think that it was probably inevitable, and, and maybe Trudeau had nudged him along. Uh, he also Trudeau also promised if, if reelected that there's a, a billion dollar money pot for provinces that want to bring in these systems. So you know Ford might be looking at that as well. I think that, you know, it was really only a matter of time. We're hearing from medical experts, uh, chief medical officers of health, you know, threatening to go it alone and bring in systems of their own. Businesses even, we had the Ontario Chamber of Commerce come out with, uh, you know, general legal advice for businesses that want to bring in these types of policies in the absence of a system put out by the government. And I think if, if anyone was going to convince this premier who has championed small businesses and says he's all about uh, the small biz uh, crew that, you know, something like this would, would push him because I think at the end of the day, a certificate system is going to be one of the ways that we can hopefully avoid future lockdowns um, and some of the devastation that the businesses have seen over this past year. Yeah, you're right. The dynamic has changed really since he took a stand on this. First of all, uh, consistent polling right across the border, but even in Ontario, suggests that about 85% of the people are supportive of something like this. Now, I know there's a vocal minority who have been raising, well, you know what, over the last couple of days. But, uh, uh, you know, that aside, it, it, this seems to be something that the public is clamoring for, not just the businesses. And I wanted to ask you about the Trudeau announcement on Friday, a billion dollars to the provinces basically to cover some of the cost of doing this. Was that maybe in your mind the deciding factor to say, well, if they're going to pay for it, why not? Uh, I mean, I think it probably helps things along, but it's just it's just pressure is piling up on the on the premier to do something. And even after, especially after BC and Quebec have brought in systems of their own, um, you know, I, I think that it gets complicated on the political side of things because I know that the the premier's office, you know, behind the scenes, they don't really want to wade into this uh, vaccine passport debate. And I think that they're probably seeing down the line that this could be really problematic for them if public health units, each each system um, is different, you know, from North Bay to uh, Brampton, say that, that that could get complicated and, and they don't want to have a patchwork system. So it remains to be seen if how um, different this system will be. Uh, it might just be a matter of, you know, 
creating an app, which obviously Quebec is having issues with that, but I like to think that the province is sophisticated enough to, to figure that out and all the concerns that come with it. Uh, I, I think it'll be more sophisticated than the uh, paper receipt that we are working with now, at least, you know, that's something that's easily replicated. So again, there, there are so many questions around this, but it did kind of seem like it was really only a matter of time. And I think that we will hear the line from the premier, um, because he does not want to create a split society, as he has said repeatedly. But I, I think we will hear more about the framing coming from him about this being all about, uh, you know, not not locking down businesses again in the future. Yeah, there's two points about that. I think you're absolutely right. I mentioned that in a commentary last week, uh, that uh, the irony there was the premier was creating a split society. They had the vaccines and the, the anti-vaxxers for those who haven't been vaccinated yet. And it was getting ugly. You know, the rhetoric back and forth between the two sides, the temperature was rising. Uh, and I'm sure that wasn't lost on Queen's Park. Uh, but the other element, and I think your point is bang on here, although they're not going to mention this if they make an official announcement, uh, next June is the next provincial election. And if there is a spike in Ontario, and if the Premier is forced to do any kind of a lockdown, even if it's not province-wide, he's going to wear it because people are going to say, you could have done something about it and you didn't. So I think you know he can at least come back and say, look, I've used all the tools at my disposal. Yeah, and, and I mean, June is, I guess, in terms of the pandemic, a, a lot could change by then. We don't really sure. know what the situation will be next spring. Um, and of course, you know, the, the Premier has given himself powers at least until December to uh, deal with the pandemic. So that might be, I mean, of course, that could be extended again if, if the PCs think there is a need for it. But I do think that how we got out of the pandemic, not so much the handling of it, I think that uh, how we came out of it, how businesses were helped or not helped, uh, you know, some of the fourth wave measures, what's happening in schools, that type of thing will certainly be a ballot question for Ontario voters next June. The fact that he wanted to stay out of the election, and, you know, we talked about that, I guess, a week or so ago when you brought that story to us, Sabrina. If he's going to move forward on this, and let's assume that, that you know, what you're hearing is, is legitimate, and later on this week they'll probably make this announcement, that puts him right between O'Toole and Trudeau, doesn't it? Because, I mean, obviously jo Justin Trudeau has been an advocate for this, uh, Aaron O'Toole not so much. I mean, he's they're, they're polar opposites when it comes to this issue, uh, and even though Doug Ford didn't seem to want to take sides in this, by making this decision, he's taken a side. Yeah, and it was kind of interesting how when Trudeau first raised uh, Doug Ford for the first time during this campaign, it was kind of as a, a slight to Aaron O'Toole. Uh, it was kind of like, well, you know, even Doug Ford is, is on board with vaccine mandates. But in reality, I think generally speaking, you know, a lot of the political leaders, uh, conservative, liberal, what have you, they are generally in favor of uh regular testing for the unvaccinated and like we are starting to see some of those details get hammered out and certain organizations even taking that farther we have uhn uh, the university health network here in toronto that is now saying that if you're not vaccinated uh it's not regular testing you could you could lose your job unless obviously you have a valid exemption so i think you know the devil's really in the details here uh this is obviously a, a big issue for Canadians uh, politically, and I, I don't think we're going to see it, it let up anytime soon. Yeah, and, and it's going to be fascinating to see just what happens here, because if, in fact, this comes down, uh, they get to make the rules. And you're right, I mean, because some, like, you know, the University of Health Network and others have been pretty stringent about this. Others, not so much. But, I mean, they, they can fashion this, and, and if they want to make it, you know, a little less onerous for people that refuse to get vaccinated, they have that at their disposal. So I, I, I this 
I'm assuming the reason this is taking so long is they want to get it right in the wording uh, so the people, that, even that may not be crazy about this idea, are going to say, well, I guess I can live with that. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated policy. There's lots to take into consideration. Um, there's also unions. You know, not all unions are in favor of this, uh, especially for public sector workers, which we're seeing at, at every level, uh, even locally. Uh, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie, Bonnie Crombie was one of the most recent ones who brought in a policy, vaccine policy for city of Mississauga staff. So I think that that's probably another reason why Doug Ford and, and the provincial government are looking at, you know, we're going to have to bring something in eventually. Uh, we may as well do it now uh, before things get complicated because there's a lot of human rights issues. There's a lot of legal concerns. It's, it's complicated to navigate. And so if the province kind of sets out a system um, itself and that I'm sure that that uh, will give a lot of organizations peace of mind um, and of course you know there's there's still lots to be answered on enforcement um, privacy security and that type of thing but uh, I think that it'll probably give uh, you know people people are feeling cautiously optimistic that we are going to get an announcement sometime soon this week. Were they surprised by the pushback they got on the Sabrina when he refused to do this? You know, you mentioned a number of organizations, uh, including well, the Ontario Medical Association, uh, business associations, uh, parent-teacher groups. I mean, it was uh, it was quite a push. Everybody speaking with one voice on that. I'm wondering if they even expected that that sort of feedback. Uh, it's it's interesting because they uh, it's interesting to hear where the opposition is coming from now, actually, because there's kind of been whispers and chatter about what this will mean for uh, Doug Ford and the Conservatives' base, because there seems to be this perception out there that it tends to be Conservatives who don't like vaccine mandates and policies. But I, that's why I think that, you know, framing it as this is a, a business-minded policy, this is so that we don't have future lockdowns, that that's going to work for the Conservatives. But we have seen Tory outcasts, um, anti-lockdown MPPs like Roman Baber, who used to be uh, on the government bench, was booted. Uh, you know, Jim Carhelios, uh, these these wayward Tories, if I can call them that, uh, they are, you know, rallying behind regulations that are enabling the local medical officers of health to bring in policies for businesses. And that's kind of a in-the-weeds technical, you know, change to the law. But the line from people like Roman Baber and anti-lockdown MPPs is that, you know, Ford wants to pass the buck and let local medical officers of health bring in these vaccine certificates that might not be as popular with, uh, you know, certain voters. But I do think that, that that is a bit of a spin because we are hearing that the chief medical officer of health is going to bring in a province-wide system, first of all. And I think that at least that regulation will probably allow um, local offices of health to uh, beef it up if they feel the need to. I'm not sure what exactly that looks like in practice until we get the actual announcement. But it's not surprising because the Ford government has always uh, allowed local medical officers of health um, to strengthen policies that the province brings in. So I, I don't know if this will um, move votes majorly uh, provincially, but I think 
federally, it's definitely become an issue. Yeah, so I guess the goal here, as far as the government, the Ford government is concerned, is set the minimum standards. And, and uh, you know, in other words, say, yeah, this is going to be necessary. You want to get into, you know, Rogers Center, whatever the case might be, you have to show proof of vaccination. But as to as to what the penalties would be or everything else, that leave that up to the individual boards of health, or I guess up to the individual businesses. And I, I, again, you're right. I mean, they're kind of straddling the fence here, but uh, it's still a very sticky political issue for everybody. Absolutely. And I mean, we we are scheduled to hear from Dr. Karen Moore tomorrow afternoon. Uh, actually, Doug Ford has a PC fundraising event that he'll be attending tomorrow evening. So um, I am speculating wildly here, but uh, I do wonder if he'll have an announcement or we'll get a chance to ask him questions during the day because it's not the best optics if you have not taken media questions and are fundraising for the party on this uh at the same time. So, uh, you know, my fingers are crossed. I've got a lot of questions for the premier. We, we might, well, we'll definitely hear from more as well in the afternoon tomorrow, the top doctor. Uh, but I think politically, if, if they kind of have more as the, the person who's presenting this, um, it allows the criticism to be on more rather than, uh, you know, a, a minister or the premier himself. So it kind of puts the opposition parties in a bit of an awkward position if they have problems or concerns with whatever system the province brings in um they're kind of there attacking what the top doctor uh you know an unelected official is is saying so you know i'm really hoping that we hear from the the premier tomorrow uh even today hopefully a, a minister because yeah there's there's a lot of questions going around Got about a minute left. I got to ask you though. I mean, you've been covering th- this guy since the you know the day he made the announcement in his mother's basement in Mississauga that he was going to run for the leadership of the PC party, and we know what's happened subsequent to that, of course. But I'm I'm getting the sense that one of the things about Doug Ford is he does not like criticism. Uh, I don't know if he bristles at it or you just I don't know what it is, but because there's a few times now where he said to reverse roles, and he he seems to do it rather sheepishly. I mean, you know, you talk about politicians having to have a thick skin. Uh, I don't know if he's developed that yet i mean is there some concern based on that sabrina that, that one of the reasons he may be delaying this because he figures they're going to get oh here he goes backtracking again uh i mean i definitely think that some of the criticism he's facing now but you can kind of spin that however you want it i mean if you're a ford fan you might say well the, the premier has listened to experts and heard from from people in the know and now he's changing his decision that's just called, you know, good policy making. Uh, you know, otherwise you might see this as he capitulates constantly. I think, um, you know, for me, we have seen many reversals throughout this pandemic. I think uh, lately they have, and the closer that we get to June 2022, they seem almost paralyzed to make bold decisions um, and scared because of some of the blowback that they have received in the past. Um, I, I, I do think that, you know, it means that we are seeing more, you know, trial balloons being floated. Uh, one political, I'm not saying this is, you know, the case every time, but, you know, one result of having all this news leak on a Friday is that you can kind of gauge the reaction on social media, you know, in uh, opinion pieces, you know, hear what the experts are saying about this before you, uh, you know, put the final touches on the policy. So it's really interesting um, how they're kind of gauging with the public. I mean, for me, I I think they should be bold. That was kind of how the, the PCs operated uh, in the Dean French days and battled former chief of staff 
for Ford. Uh, they were kind of unapologetic about it. And, you know, for better or worse, um, at the end of the day, they, they are now having, you know, they now have more support than they did back when they first started in 2018. And I think maybe now they could try and capitalize that and push through uh, non-pandemic policies that will really shine um, and get them reelected as they want next June. Well, they've got the people that know how to wordsmith all this stuff, too. Uh, watch for it when they make the announcement. This phrase, uh, it's never too late to do the right thing. We could kind of play like a Queen's Park drinking game with that, Sabrina. Uh, not, that every, not that you guys in the Queen's Park Bureau ever do anything like that, but, I mean, hypothetically we could. Uh, we'll watch for your reporting on this later on this week. Thanks so much for the time. Take care. Thanks, Sabrina Nancy was the founder of Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. At the request of the U.S. forces, uh, all the other allied forces, including Canadians, uh, were asked to leave last Thursday, and they did. Uh, but there was still work to be done, as uh, we heard from uh, from Mark Garneau and certainly from the Prime Minister himself. Uh, they're going to make every effort to try to get those Canadians and the, uh, the people that they had promised refugee status to out of the country. Well, how do you do that in a situation like this, to, to start negotiating with the ruling uh, group there, which is the Taliban, to bring those citizens back. Joining us to talk about this is Ashufaloy Majumba, who is a foreign policy director and Monk senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute and a former director of policy to Canada's foreign minister. Uh, pleasure to have you back, sir, on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Thanks to you for having me back. Let me ask you right off the top, uh, how do you begin negotiations uh, with an entity that you've already labeled as a terrorist organization? I mean, that's not really the firmest of foundations to start a relationship, is it? Well, I'd argue that it's not our problem for having labeled them as a terrorist, but their terrorist activities for many decades that has disqualified them as reasonable partners. And I also take note, uh, I don't know if you saw the news story from late last night of how uh, Mark McKinnon at the Globe and Mail uh, connected with the Ukrainians and was able to arrange a flight and throw special forces into Kabul to bring people out. I thought that was a pretty remarkable um, story that uh, shows that. There are ways in which uh, novel, entrepreneurial, um, and serious government or serious decisions can be made to get people out of Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, there is an element of risk that is involved with them. Um, and we've seen, you know, 13 American Marines pay that price, as well as 70 uh, Afghans around Kabul International Airport. But that being said, uh, negotiating with the Taliban is, a, is going to be a very tricky thing to, to navigate. I think that what it really comes down to is a decision that Canada and our G7 partners are going to be making this week, which is who is the actual heir to uh, the government of Afghanistan? Is it this terrorist army that is sponsored by Pakistan that has seized power, uh, the legitimate government? Or is it the Northern Resistance, which has the first vice president of Afghanistan in Panjshir, Amrullah Saleh, uh, which is a government that was elected and backed by six elections since 9-11 20 years ago. Uh, so legitimacy is going to be a key issue in terms of which government, which authority Canada genuinely recognizes. I would contend it should be the elected government that Canada recognizes. Any indication as to which way they're leaning on that? Uh, because, uh, you know, the government that they recognize right now is, is, well, some of them are in hiding right now, and the Taliban have pretty much indicated that they are the ruling party now. But they're not technically a party, are they? The Taliban are a proxy of Pakistan's uh, intelligence apparatus, as are the Haqqani Network and ISIK. You're going to hear, your ears are going to hear about a lot of different terrorist groups inside Afghanistan over the next few weeks. 
Much of it is a pantomime shell game. Much of it is organized singularly from Pakistan and from Islamabad with the purpose of trying to create confusion and sow chaos in Afghanistan as part of a policy they have of strategic depth. When the American withdrawal happened, Pakistan saw that there was an opportunity to seize power through their proxy army and accomplish that. They're backed by China and many other rivals of Canada and our allied partners. So when we're thinking about you know, what, what we need to do to really treat the nature of the problem, the way to stop Afghan instability is to confront Pakistan for what it has been doing um, in Afghanistan and to the Afghan people at the expense of the Pakistani people. And, and is there a willingness by the G7 or NATO or anybody at this point to, to, to call them out on that? No, it strikes me that much of the West is more inclined to want to be accommodationists to um, people who are totalitarians and who are bullies. It seems like, just like we have seen in Iran and other conflicts around the world, the tendency is one to, to go along, to get along, uh, for the purposes of a short-term kind of stable transaction, rather than to really discover the root of what I think has shaken so many Western capitals after Joe Biden was through from the United States, which is this is a period of great global upheaval and change. Our rivals are on the march. And for us to get it together, we actually need to have a clear sense as to who we are and where we want to go, rather than accommodate the, the bullies that are showing up in the world stage. I'd like to get your, your read, if I could, uh, about the dynamic in, in Afghanistan as we speak, uh, and, and even what's going on around Kabul these days. We saw about the horrific attack, as you mentioned, by ISIS-K last week, and a number of people were killed and injured. Uh, and, and we've got the Taliban, according to reports, actually defending the airport right now against ISIS. I mean, that, that's the way they're characterizing it right now, uh, which is a rather unique circumstance, shall we say, as, as Americans are trying to get their people out. Uh, it looks like the Taliban says, we've got your back here. Uh, it's, it's a rather odd, odd dynamic, really. I mean, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, is the enemy of my enemy, my friend. And I don't think anybody in America is ready to categorize the Taliban as their friends now, are they? This is exactly the problem, Bill. That's a really great question, because... You know, the, the shared leadership, money source, uh, guns, communications advice, operations logistics for both the Taliban and ISI come from Pakistan. And it comes from the same organization inside Pakistan's intelligence apparatus called uh, Directorate S. And this particular directorate has relationships with these two terror organizations as well as the Haqqani Network and others. And they're going to create a choreography, you will see, over the next few weeks around the good terror versus the bad terror, because that's the same play that Pakistan has been making with the West for 20 years. Mm. While they've been taking our support and our money and our material um, uh, contributions to their military apparatus, they have been arming and equipping the same enemies that have been killing our soldiers and undermining our development work. So this is a game they're very good at playing. And I think it's time that the West, Washington, Ottawa, wake up, name this threat for what it is, so that we can actually deal with what the source of instability in Afghanistan is. But at this point, anyway, it seems as if the Taliban are, are, are playing that game at the same time. I mean, you, you know, from the time that they really, I guess, took hold of, of, of Kabul, uh, they said, hey, we're not the same Taliban you guys knew 20 years ago. You know, we're, we're Taliban light. You know, we're much more open-minded. Uh, women can have a role in our society. Uh, we, hey, no hard feelings against the people that, that, you know, worked with the Allied forces. Uh, that's what they're saying. But, you know, even in that short period of time, we've already seen that, no, they have gone door to 
Salvador and simply assassinated people that they thought were enemies of, of their movement, etc. And we're already starting to hear some stories about women who are concerned and afraid to go out, come out of their houses. So, I mean, what they're saying, what they're doing are two different things, but they seem to want to portray themselves globally at this stage as, as, as a, a legitimate entity to, to govern the country. Of course they do. They want the legitimacy so that they can reap uh, whatever profit they can off the Afghanistan state, whether it's through drugs or through uh, corruption. At the end of the day, though, just because it's sophisticated propaganda doesn't mean that it's not propaganda. And, you know, in the last week, we've watched Pakistan's foreign minister go visit his counterpart in Tehran. And we know that China backs both Pakistan and Iran through their economic Belt and Road Initiative to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. And that Afghanistan is a piece of that puzzle for a larger geoeconomic game that Beijing has been playing inside Afghanistan for years. So just because the Taliban 2.0 have good advisors on how to communicate in the capitals, how to, how to silence and censure local press, they'll say things like, oh, yes, we want women and girls to go to school. And then last night they would say, well, no male teachers can teach female students. There aren't enough female teachers to teach all the female students in Afghanistan. So they'll say what they need to on the surface, undermine it underneath the surface, just to what we can see with our narrow prism into Kabul International Airport. But across the rest of the country, the developing kill lists, killing comedians, uh, banning artists. This is just the beginning of something that we know is the true nature of the Taliban, which is outright evil, and it has to be confronted. People have to, I guess, hear some of those stories, don't they, to really get an understanding of what's going on there. You talked about uh, their their supposed war against, well, the arts, when it comes down to it. And the, the, the tragic story I'm sure you saw over the weekend, too, about a, a singer, a folk singer, but not, not yeah. a Bob Dylan writing protest songs, but just a folk singer singing the praises of Afghanistan, and he was murdered in front of his family because they said, you know, music is contrary to what we believe as the Taliban. So he was just murdered right there. Uh, that's the sort of thing that these people are facing. So you can understand, you know, these people at the airports and we've got to get out of here we need to spend more time listening to the afghan people and less time thinking to the you know elite journalists and some of the diplomats who give us a picture of afghanistan and the taliban that are just not true to reality i think the reality that i'm seeing i used to live and work in afghanistan for a few years back in 2007 um, i've remained in touch with my old colleagues and now friends over this very difficult time and they don't just exist in Kabul. They're spread throughout the country, from Herat in the, in the west to um, Nangarhar on the, on, the, on, the, on the east and Kandahar in the south. And they, they're telling me through WhatsApp messages uh, how Taliban are coming door to door, creating lists of people. The Taliban have received a trove of data through how quickly they seized Kabul um, and have figured out who's getting paid by the Afghan security services over the last several years. These, this is a... This is the Taliban is a very sophisticated terror organization that is being backed by the military of Pakistan. And together, they know exactly what they're doing to try and make their Faustian bargain with the West. Say, work with us. We're reasonable. While under the table, they will continue to turn Afghanistan into a into a state that quashes its own people and becomes a nest of terrorism for the next decade to come. As evidenced by, well, we had a guest on the program last week uh, who was 
from Kabul, young man we, we made connection with, and he had arranged to come on to show with us uh, next last Wednesday, I guess it was. Uh, at the appointed time, we called him, and he said, "I got, I got to hang up. I'll talk to you later." I said, "It was by the way, it was the first time he'd, he'd gone outside the house in five days, but they needed food." So, but he said, "Okay." He says, "If I'm caught speaking English on the street, I can be arrested." So he says, yeah. "I had to wait until I got behind my my closed doors again to be able to do that." And I I, I said to my listeners, "I just think about that for a second. That's the the conditions in which these people are living right now. That saying the wrong thing or looking the wrong way at somebody, and you're thrown in jail or executed." And it's not even been two and a half weeks, Bill. Like this isn't yeah. this is not this is not the metric of what a regime sincere on modernity looks like. You know, if they if this if this Taliban so-called Taliban were uh, determined to bring peace and modernity to the Afghan people, I think their initial behavior would be very different than everything we're seeing now. They wouldn't say to Afghans, "You can leave the country," and then circle the airport, preventing Afghans from leaving the country. They wouldn't say to the Afghan women. You can go to school and take away female teachers and instruct that only old men and women can be teachers. They, they, they will, they're very good at saying on the surface one thing and then in the details, killing their intention. And that's exactly what they've been doing and what they'll continue to do. Well, if the stated goal here from Minister Garneau and from the Prime Minister is to try to get those people out of there, uh, how do you do that in light of what we've just talked about and described here? I mean, the, the, there's got to be some give and take here. I mean, you want those people out of there, which means you're going to have to, in some way, uh, shape or form, I guess, uh, give in to some of these things and, and, and try to pacify the Taliban to a certain extent. Is, is, are we looking at a third-party intervention here to try to facilitate something like this? I think we have to dispense with the axioms that have created failure over the last 20 years as we get into the next chapter of whatever happens. And to do that, I think what it means is that first and foremost, when we think about Afghanistan, we should think about Amrullah Saleh, the first vice president who remains in Afghanistan in Panjshir Valley and is the legal heir of the Afghan constitution and the acting president of the country. That's the first thing I think we should do and how we recognize who the legitimate Afghan government is and begin to provide those who oppose the Taliban material support and humanitarian support to continue their resistance to the Taliban because these Afghans do exist. The second thing we need to do is work with our partners in the international community to rethink who our partners in South Asia are. Why is it that a military that has been waging a war against ours, our principal partner, when new partners like India should feature more centrally, and democracies like India that have more experienced regional terrorism can be better counsel and advisors to us. And third, what we should be doing is uh, bringing the G7 economies, G20 economies, the biggest economies of the world, we should do a serious think about how do we isolate Pakistan's military and particularly those specific players that have been sponsoring, funding, training, and organizing terrorism in Afghanistan and elsewhere how do we persuade them through isolating them economically through sanctions uh, to stop this ridiculous policy of strategic depth that has kept Afghanistan unstable and begin replacing it with the idea of some sort of regional growth? Um, and so I think that behavior has to change. So those are the three things that I would start with today. Um, and for diplomats going to Doha to negotiate with the Taliban, I would say do not principally think the Taliban is your only partner in Afghanistan. You have many others. You know who they are. You've been there for 20 years. Do the work and don't be lazy. On that piece of good advice, we'll have to leave it off. We're just about out of time. Chivalry, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill.
Take care. Shiva Lerman Jumbo, of course, Foreign Policy Director at the Monk, Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurie Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Friday uh, was, uh, well, an ugly scene. Uh, the Liberal campaign actually canceled an early evening rally on Friday after an unruly group of demonstrators, boy, that's being kind to them, uh, denounced Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and pandemic policies. Uh, they set off safety concerns. Dozens of protesters followed the Liberal campaign to the rally. Uh, they used expletives, chants, waved their middle fingers, made references to Nazis over megaphones as a line of police stood before them. And uh, Trudeau himself spoke with supporters and addressed the intensity of the protesting crowd. I've never seen this intensity of anger on the campaign trail or in Canada, not when I was a kid, even with my dad visiting out west, where we did see anger. Certainly not in my past 12 years as a politician, where I regularly see protesters. Should we be concerned about this kind of behavior? I think absolutely we should. Uh, and let's talk about this. Uh, joining us to talk about uh, the implications and what happened, uh, Dr. David Hoffman, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Brunswick. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be on. Susan Delacour writes in the Toronto Star today, I don't know if you saw her uh, her column, uh, said that uh, what she saw Friday reminded her of, uh, of what happened in the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th. And she was clear to point out, she says, no, it was nowhere near the magnitude, but both came from the same place. Is that a fair analysis? I think so. Um, what we're seeing here in Canada is, is uh, essentially a, a bleeding effect that um, I've been observing and, and uh, researching for the past five to six years or so. Um, what we're essentially getting here is is a, uh, a light or a Canadianized version of uh, the type of polemic politics we're seeing in the United States, where uh, it's a small minority of Canadians, but they tend to be very vocal and very energetic, uh, are uh, are grasping on to uh, far right talking points that are uh, central to uh, Trumpism, that are central to some of the the American far right talking points. And as we saw with the, the January 6th uh, insurrection, I don't think there's any other way to call it, no, in the United States, um, uh, there's uh, a lot of anger, a lot of violence. And, and as, as Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned, uh, I mean, this is uh, fairly new for the Canadian landscape. Uh, sadly, uh, but something that we had, I, I mentioned this in my commentary this morning, too. I said, you know, if uh, you ever want to see exactly what happens with uh, with Canadians, uh, you want to see how ignorance and hatred are passed from one generation to the next, just watch as, as those children on Friday uh, were parroting the vile comments shouted by their parents, screaming angry and obscene incantations and threats, uh, passed on from one generation to the next. This is this is not dissent. I mean, we've seen dissent, and we've seen people that are upset with policy. This is a... I thought an attempt to try to introduce anarchy in, into the election campaign here. Yeah, and, and as I mentioned, it's straight out of the, the Trumpist uh, or the far-right American playbook. It's, it's, I mean, everyone has their own political opinions, and it's, it's a valid part of, of any sort of Western liberal democracy. Um, everyone uh, approves or, or disapproves of, of certain uh, stances or policies that, that any political party will take. Um, well, uh, again, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, I mentioned it's, it's new in the Canadian context. Uh, maybe I was a little bit hasty with that. I mean, uh, what you mentioned with the, the children, I mean, there, there is a legacy of, of, um, I mean, there's a clear, uh, from a sociological standpoint, there's a clear link between passing on values between generations. I mean, uh, all, every single one of your listeners can probably relate to the fact that, you know, you, you pick up and you pick and choose and, uh, the, the types of ideas and, whether politically leaning or, or 
um, uh, socialized to you through through day to day interactions with your parents and so on and so forth. And uh, what we've seen here is is probably the the um, seeding. Uh, of of more polemic-based politics here in Canada. I don't want to be alarmist and say, oh, this is the beginning of the end, we're going to become America light. We're not. Um, Canadians are, are uh, distinct in more, more than one way than, uh, than Americans. But, but it is troubling when you see these, these small vocal minority of, of individuals who, who uh, bring this Americanized version of, of far-right politics and, and, again, passing it on to their kids and having them socialize with it. They pass it on to their... their uh, their contemporaries and so on and so forth. So, uh, absolutely alarming, absolutely troubling. But um, uh, uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll leave my diatribe there. <laughs> well, no, I understand where you're coming from because I mean, if you and context, I think is absolutely right, Professor. We need to look at it from that standpoint. We know uh, from surveys that have been done by numerous individuals over the last little while that 85 to 90 percent of the population in this country support uh, vaccination, and as a matter of fact, even proof of vaccination. So, you know, this is this is a small minority, but as you say, they're vocal. Uh, they 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 carried the day as far as the news wheel was concerned that particular day because it's something that we don't see very often right now. I don't necessarily know that it swung anybody over to their way of thinking, but it, I think it was a stark reminder that that element is there. Yeah, and it's also a reflection of um, the same sort of anxieties everyone is, is suffering right now with through COVID and through through the vaccination process. I'm, I'm pro-vaccination. I'm vaccinated myself. I encourage everyone I know to be vaccinated. Uh, but the the um, the kind of fear and trepidation that these people are 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 expressing is, is uh, a function of the fact is that they, there's a, a feeling of powerlessness. When people feel powerless, especially in, in a large-scale COVID pandemic like this, uh, they turn to one of the few things they can control, which is their own bodies. And then they, they I'm not being an apologist by, by any means, but this is, this is a, an extreme reaction to, to um, this feeling of powerlessness, amongst many other social, social factors. And this also translates into, into political stances. The, the whole entire anti-vax way of thinking is part of um, a, a right wing or a, uh, sorry let me let me differentiate but right wing politics are, are normative and, and so on and so forth uh, uh, far right idea sphere so I'm talking the extreme of the extreme anti-vax mm-hmm. along with conspiracy theories along with Trumpism and so on and so forth I mean this is this is blended together where and and people who who have these fears of over over vaccination will, will blend it and pick and choose whatever makes sense to them in this in this very very um, um, fear-filled time and uh, we'll, we'll blend it into something that makes sense and and one of the the key talking points over the past uh, four to five years has been anti being anti-trudeau um, uh, blending it with larger conspiracy theories about uh, one world governments and and uh, secret societies ruling the world and so on and so forth um, and the same sort of way we saw like anti-obama and anti-biden we're seeing it canadianized here as, as anti-trudeau which we saw in the flesh on Friday. What I think frustrates me, and I'm sure others, Professor, is, is an awful lot of this is, is, is based on ignorance. Uh, you know, they, I mean, even, for instance, to, to draw parallels between the Trudeau administration and Nazis, uh, Nazis was a right-wing totalitarian system. I mean, the, the criticism about Trudeau, the legitimate criticism, is that maybe he's trying to move the country too far to the left. They, they're going to the poll. Just say, we saw, I don't know if you saw this on the news the other day, on the national news, uh, some idiot had put a swastika on an NDP campaign sign, on a lawn sign. Uh, yeah. and the NDP may be many things, but they are not right-wing uh, on any slip. So these, these no. people really don't understand, and there's a disconnect between what they're doing and, and the reality. I mean, it, it goes, uh, there's an old um, 
talking point that that uh, brings up the point that Nazi is, is the uh, I don't know the exact German translation, but it's National Socialist uh, Arbeits Party. I think that's what it is. So it's National Socialist Workers Party, and then they, they point to the fact that aha, socialism is in with uh, is contained within Nazism. And then they, as I mentioned, you have these people who are afraid, who are ignorant. You got that right on the nose. Who then blended up with with 1950s and and, and even contemporary anti-communism that you see from the far right uh, in America. And then uh, it's not not a very far leap for them uh, in their own little ideas here that that aha, socialism and, and left wing is the same as Nazis. And it's the same way that people, the way people bring up Hitler at the drop of a hat on online to win any sort of argument or or comparisons to Hitler, right? It, it, it's a universally um, recognized symbol of, of, of fascism or, or whatever you want it to be within your own particular ideology. And you're absolutely right. It's misused and it, it's laughable. Um, uh, it, it's based on ignorance. But at the same time, um, there is some sort of, believe it or not, cohesive uh, strain of thought behind why these people are calling uh, incorrectly, in my mind, you know, NDP uh, people on, on the left or, or centrist uh, politics as Nazis. But again, it, it's to it's to um, uh, everyone understands what a Nazi is. It's it's a bad person, quote unquote. So it, it's it's uh, kind of this mental gymnastics to appropriate the term. Well, we saw that during the Trump years, and we even during the campaign. And if you recall, I guess it was about a year ago. Uh, you know, as they were getting into this, the short strokes of the presidential campaign, uh, people that he didn't like, including Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, uh, he used the term socialist as if that, right. in a very derogatory sense, uh, as if socialism is is the evil and it's one step away from communist dictatorship. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been socialism in the United States since 1945. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt introduced a, a number of things, in other words, to help society, uh, including yeah. things like minimum wage, including social or social security, they call it down there. Uh, those are socialist policies to use the, the common, you know, definition of that. Yet all mm -hmm. of a sudden you want to, you want to put a, a negative spin on that stuff. And, uh, it's, it's, I, I'm surprised that people don't understand that what, you, that what you're arguing about here is something that you'd be the first one to put your hand out and say, I want some of that. Well, it harkens exactly to what you you brought up earlier with with uh, children mimicking their parents at the rally. So what you have here are, are uh, baby boomers, children of of uh, individuals in the United States who grew up in you know with the Red Scare, with McCarthyism and and the Cold War, who um, basically have have passed on this this fear of communism. Or or and again, there's not really an, a true understanding of what communism and socialism is. It's it's based on Another very apt talking point you brought up, ignorance. And it's, it's wo woven itself into American right-wing politics, and, and very much so in American far-right politics. A lot of the militia movements, when I, I teach uh, the history of terrorism in, in one of my courses, uh, I, I spend a lot of time talking about um, the, the far-right movements in the United States, and, and it's blended all up in this, this fear, of this red scare, this fear of, of uh, communists and, and one-world governments and so on and so forth, coming to take away their guns and, and whatnot. So, I mean, it, it's this, um, it's this intergener uh, sorry, intergenerational trauma that you were talking about uh, to a T, and it, it's made its way up here. I mean, we live in, in an increasingly small world. Uh, everyone can connect to everyone else through, through uh, very high-powered computers in everyone's pocket, and the, the spread of these ideas that transcends borders. And with uh, America and Canada being so close together, there, there's an absolute bleed in polemic politics that, that again, a small minority of individuals will pick up and, and unironically 
bring it to the Canadian context. I've spoken with individuals on, on the far right who have unironically told me to my face that, you know, Trudeau is violating their Second Amendment rights. Uh, uh, absolutely unironically. Uh, when we don't have the Constitution <laughs> or, or Second Amendment here in Canada. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's ignorance. You're, you're absolutely right. Well, and there are two, as you know, very vast differences even between our, our, our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Americans uh, from a philosophical standpoint. And that's been, I think, underscored by our Supreme Court numerous times. People don't want to, I guess, let the facts get in the way of their their own uh, perception of the way things should be. You mentioned so, a minute ago, like at the beginning of our conversation, though, Professor, uh, you know, that Canada won't get as far as the United States did. I mean, it's terrible that we saw what was going on there. Uh, but, you know, 15 years ago, if you and I were having this discussion, I'd say there's no way a guy like Donald Trump's ever going to become president. There's no yeah. way that, that, that a, a majority of people that are voting in any given U.S. election would elect somebody of that ilk. Yet it mm -hmm. happened. Uh, and, and he's not going away. Uh, and there are those who would be, you know, the, the Maxime Berniers and others. There's a Maverick Party that, that's starting to form out West right now. Uh, and, of course, the People's Party and things of that nature. So they are represented on the political spectrum right now. Uh, how do we, how do we, how do we stop that from growing to the point where it, it just consumes and, and, and swallows up a, a democratic process? Um, and I should, I should be careful in the way I say things. Uh, and it's my fault, not your fault. Uh, no, no, no. I you know, never, never say never. You know, um, maybe, maybe I'm taking more of a, a, a affirmative stance just because, you know, I have, I have a limited time to, to mention it. But, but you're right. It, it's complacent to say never uh, to, to say it can never happen here. I, I think it's less likely to happen here because in Canada we have uh, better access to education. We have other, we are we have a, an institutionalized um, social, uh, socialized medicine. We have uh, we tend to be uh, focused more on uh, multiculturalism as opposed to melting pot. So I mean um, it, these aren't panaceas. These aren't absolute cure alls for for the type of far right. Uh, thought that is has uh, I mean ripped apart America. Um, so I mean we're a little bit to use a, I guess more of a up to date term. We're inoculated against this type of thought a, a little bit better just by virtue of, of uh, uh, longstanding social institutions and, and, and social beliefs here in Canada. But it, it's, no, it's not impossible, and we should be on guard. And and whenever I get asked this type of question, my answer is pretty straightforward. It, it needs to happen at the local level. Uh, when confronted with acts of racism, with acts of, of bias, with, uh, with acts of, of, uh, of uh, hate, uh, the community needs to stand up and say, we, we won't stand for it. And it, I mean, it, it, it happens at the polls when, you know, people don't, you know, vote or campaign against, vote against these types of, of far-right parties with these exclusionary ideas, which are, and I'll, I'll be so bold to say, anti-Canadian. Uh, don't, don't be silent when, when you see or hear of, of uh, uh, far-right politics that are, that are again, anti-Canadian. Um, a national strategy is great. Uh, acknowledging it at the, at the federal level is great, and it should be done for its symbolic value, but for the, the real type of opposition to these types of things happens at the local level. Uh, I, I'm utterly convinced. Completely agree, and we've seen examples of that in, in some of our cities in these days, and you're right, we need to, to be proactive about that. Uh, great conversation, Professor. Really do appreciate spending some time with you today. Thank you so much.
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. Dr. David Hoffman, of course, uh, professor of sociology at the University of New Brunswick. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.